This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to today's Bright Focus chat, why AMD is on the rise and what can be done. If this is your first time on a Bright Focus chat, welcome. Let me take a moment to tell you about Bright Focus and what we'll do today. Bright Focus funds some of the top scientists in the world. We support researchers who are trying to find cures for macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's. We share the latest news from these scientists with families that are impacted by these diseases. Today's Bright Focus chat is another way of sharing this information as widely as we can. Today we're going to discuss a new report from the National Academy of Sciences on vision health in America. The study found, and I quote, despite the importance of eyesight, millions of people grapple with undiagnosed or untreated vision impairments, ranging from mild conditions to total blindness and eye and vision health remain relatively absent from the national health priority lists, end quote. The study found that age-related macular degeneration, or often called AMD, is particularly on the rise. The authors noted a dramatic increase over the last decade, and they predict that the number of Americans with advanced forms of AMD may more than double by 2050. Way of background, the National Academy of Sciences is an independent advisory council. It was created in 1863 by President Abraham Lincoln. We're fortunate to be joined today by a member of the Academy's vision panel, as well as, as, well as one of her colleagues at the Illinois College of, Op of Optometry. Today's guests are Dr. Sandra Block. She's a professor at the Illinois College of Optometry, and she was a member of the National Academy of Sciences study panel. Also joining us today is Dr. Christine Moriton, an assistant professor at the Illinois College of Optometry, and she's chief of the Urgent Eye Care Services. Her interests include urgent eye care, primary eye care, ocular disease, and retinal disease. So today we'll discuss more about vision health in America and what can be done, and we'll take your questions. We don't always have time to answer all the questions during today's chats, but we do save them to ask for future chats. So turning to uh, our guests today, I was wondering, uh, Dr. Block, if we could start off with you. Um, uh, what, did, what was your panel at the National Academy of Sciences charged with doing, and what did you recommend? So um, the panel was an interesting group. There was a statement of task that was put together by a group of organizations that represent vision and vision issues around the country. That included the National Institute of Health, the CDC, uh, Prevent Blindness, the American Academy of Ophthalmology, and the American Academy of Optometry, Research to Prevent Blindness. These individuals got together and decided that we needed to bring vision to a higher level within the, the political climate, which is the government and the budget, as well as the non-governmental people the public health arena, the medical profession, because the reality is that vision is a significant problem. And our population is changing drastically, as we all know that there is an aging uh, issue going on where we will see a lot more people who are at the older level of uh, the age group rather than the younger. We don't see as many, many large groups uh, of of babies being born, it's primarily we're living longer and we're hopefully living healthier lives. The committee was made up of a, a group of diverse people. There were three ophthalmologists and three optometrists, a physician, a patient with a visual impairment, 
um, as well as some public health folks that were really there to keep us on track. The whole purpose of us sitting together in a room for many hours over the year and a half was to talk about the fact that vision is an issue that oftentimes is ignored. Um, many problems that the American public face are problems that, if diagnosed, they can easily be treated, such as glasses for farsightedness or nearsightedness. But there's many vision problems that don't have that simple fix, problems that, that are diseases that we don't have a treatment for, or if they're not caught early enough, cannot treat them so the outcomes are poor. With aging, we are looking at things like diabetic retinopathy, uh, hypertensive retinopathy, glaucoma, age-related macular degeneration. The committee felt very strongly that we needed to bring these topics to a higher level and not only talk about them as, as being issues for the public, but what can be done. And the things that were brought out by the committee included, number one, we really need to know how large is the problem? What is the true number of people in the United States? Much of the numbers that we have were based on populations that were incomplete. They used to eliminate people in nursing homes or institutions. And if you think about it, people who have vision problems oftentimes at the end of life end up in those facilities. So our numbers were never very good. So we looked at, you know, that is one of our recommendations. The other issues are early prevention, a good recommendation to the public as to how often they should be seen for eye exams. Now, we didn't make that statement as to when they should be seen. What we did was we asked everybody to come together to agree on some recommendations so the American public understood very clearly how often they should be seen for an eye exam, just like we all know we're supposed to go to the dentist every six months. And then one of the other pieces that was really a very important piece is there are a lot of people who do have vision problems that leave them visually impaired or blind. And the focus needs to be on ensuring that that population has resources that we call vision rehabilitation resources and that they're not necessarily simply out of pocket, that potentially they will be covered by health care, whatever health care programs that they are on. It allows them to maintain their independence because that's one of the biggest fears as we get older is that we become more dependent on our families or the community at large. So the report came up with eight recommendations and actually we are having our first workshop next month to translate those recommendations into actual operational pieces. Well, that's, that's great. Thank you very much, Dr. Block. I think it sounds like the report really highlighted um, you know, gaps in knowledge, but also gaps in awareness. And related to public awareness, um, I read an article the other day in the newspaper about how a, um, a study at Johns Hopkins found that most Americans regard losing their eyesight as the worst ailment that could possibly happen to them, more so than loss of limb, loss of memory, or hearing or speech. But yet, as, as you mentioned, it seems like people don't always take their eye health as, as seriously um, as other types of health. I was wondering, do, do you or... Um, Personally, the panel has sort of observations or thoughts about that potential uh, contrast or, or kind of disconnect there? 
you know, Michael, when I saw it, it was it was nice to see that that the authors actually published that. This is not the first time that people have investigated whether people fear vision loss versus physical loss versus mental health issues. And and they all come down to the same information that a loss of vision is the most it's the scariest because it oftentimes forces people to become more dependent and less independent and that can lead to a whole cadre of complications, whether they're mental health issues or lack of access to appropriate health care. So so to me, that is really one of the the scary things is that people don't realize that if they don't take care of their vision, that it does lead to the loss of vision down the line. Um, I'm not quite sure how the American public is going to respond when we talk about that, because many times vision problems have no pain or discomfort. It's not like it's an acute issue that sends you to the emergency room. You may not even realize that you lose vision in one eye because the other eye is probably seeing quite well. And, and it's only when you lose vision in that second eye that you're even aware that there is a loss of vision. So our goal really is to make people aware of the fact that sometimes they may not be aware of the, the steps leading to a loss of vision so that we can do the, the intervention before the disease takes its toll on the visual system. Yeah, no, and it's interesting. And at least it seems to me that uh, maybe one of the misunderstandings is that you you can, if you, your vision isn't perfect, you can just go out and get it corrected. I could just go down and get a pair of eyeglasses or or contact lenses. How do we, you know, we as a country make people better aware that that vision is something that can be lost and perhaps irreparably, as opposed to something that with just a you know a trip to a doctor or the shopping mall can can get uh, can get improved. Well, it, it, you know, certainly we would hope that we could correct most things, and glasses certainly are an easy fix. But many times people are afraid that the vision loss can't be treated or the people that they're dealing with, their healthcare providers, don't understand that, you know, there are new techniques. There are new things out there. There are, there are processes that can be uh, used to treat some of these current problems, including glaucoma and macular degeneration. And I'd really defer to Dr. Moretton for that information because that's more in her area of expertise. Well, great. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Moretton, I know that the report um, talked about a number of conditions that are on a rise. Um, but one of them is particularly age-related macular degeneration. I was wondering, uh, Dr. Moretton, in your, in your practice, um, Kind of why, in your opinion, why do you think these diseases, why do you think macular degeneration particularly is on the rise? Well, thanks for having me. That is an excellent question. And I think the number one reason is, as Dr. Block alluded to, people are living longer now. And we also hope that people are living a more healthy lifestyle as well. And with macular degeneration, one of the biggest risk factors is age. So as we have an aging population, as Dr. Block again alluded to, we want to make sure that we're screening people earlier. So if there is something that we can do, we want to intervene earlier to prevent vision loss if we can. That's great. Uh, Thank you. And beyond aging, um, are there population groups that are more at risk for AMD than others? 
Yes, that's an excellent question. Um, genetics has a huge role to play with macular degeneration. They've isolated at least 20 genes right now that play a role, although we don't know 100% how or why these genes make someone more susceptible. So if you have someone in the family, especially your immediate family that has macular degeneration, you're more at risk. Secondly, Caucasian second seem to be more at risk than other populations. Although any ethnicity can develop macular degeneration, Caucasians are more at risk. The other and biggest modifiable risk factor is smoking. They've done lots of studies and smoking always appears to be the biggest modifiable risk factor. So that's a big conversation to have with your doctor and if you are smoking, how to quit smoking because it is such a big risk factor. Yeah. Well, well you know, you. oh, go ahead. And related to that, we, we have already have two questions that I think uh, would, would be very suited for you, Dr. Moriton. And, and it's Dr. Moriton, uh, Rollin from Wyoming uh, is wondering, is it true that blue-eyed Scandinavians are, are um, one of the more at-risk uh, populations for AMD? That's an excellent question, and yes, they are more at risk. And they've done studies to show that, yes, people with blue eyes are more at risk for developing macular degeneration. And again, the understanding of the why is still not known. You know, there's two postulations. One, it could be the underlying genetics, and it could also be the role of pigmentation in the eye itself. Interesting. And um, another question related to when you talk about it, uh, modifiable risk, um, Kathy from California wants to know the sort of the balance, like how much of the risk is environmental influence, you know, such as diet and exercise and smoking, versus how much of the risk is genetic? Oh, that is an amazing question and something we're still striving towards. We do know that there is a genetic component, and we also know that there are the environmental components. So if you are more at risk or someone in your family is at risk, we do recommend that you start the modifiable risk factors early to prevent disease and prevent pro progression of the disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that makes, makes perfect sense. And, and next question could go to either Dr. Block or Dr. Morton or perhaps both. Do you see any risks uh, or lifestyles in youth or middle age that lead to problems? I know you mentioned smoking a, a moment ago, but... Uh, do either of you or both of you see parts of um, you know American lifestyle or that in among youth and middle age that could could lead to these problems down the road? Do you want me to take this one, Dr. Block? Uh, yes, go ahead. Okay, you know an interesting area of research right now is in blue light. Um, we know that blue light has some harmful effects on the back of the eye called the retina, and we also know that it has some healthy benefits like maintaining our circadian rhythm and when we go to sleep and when we wake up. Um, they're not 100% sure what type of tints um, might be beneficial. Some companies are coming up with yellow tints um, because we see blue light from a lot of um, iPad, iPhone, a lot of technology, computer screens. So that's one thing that may put people at risk down the road. And again, it's too soon to really know, but a lot of companies have invested in these yellow tinted lenses to hopefully prevent people from developing these type of diseases if they are at risk. The other thing as well is diet. Um, people that have diets that are elevated in fat, cholesterol, high glycemic index food like white rice, uh, pasta, breads, um, can be more at risk as well. Uh, 
Uh, Dr. Boxer, anything you'd want to add to that? Um, no, I think to me the biggest issue is to ensure people have regular eye exams because I think that oftentimes some of the earlier risk factors are identified before things become a problem. So I feel it's really important to ensure that everybody understands the value of a dilated eye exam to be a part of their annual eye exams. Well, that's great. I'd like to expand on that. Um, I starting, Dr. Block, you said that your, your study group looked at the question of how often to get an eye exam. Um, is that a simple question, or is that, or is there, is, are there more than one answer? Is there more than one answer to that, depending on the, the individual? Well, there's more than one answer depending on who who, who responds. Um, there, there is a lot of question about who should get an exam every year. There, there is agreement that people who have any type of risk factor, such as you know family history of amblyopia or glaucoma, those kinds of people should be seen for regular eye exams on a regular basis from childhood through adulthood. It's the people who don't have family histories that there is some disagreement. There's a feeling that um, oftentimes children don't need an eye exam until they complain or fail a screening. Now, that would be fine if our vision screening process was a, was a good process and they were able to ensure that anybody who failed actually accessed eye exams later on. The age group between 18 and 40, which is typically a pretty healthy age group, there's lots of controversy as to whether it should be every year, every other year, or every three years. And it depends on who you talk to as to the answer you'll get. We need research to know what what is the most cost-effective way. Oftentimes, people who have vision problems and they need their glasses tweaked or something bothers them, uh, they're the ones who are going to go anyways. It's the ones that have no complaints that, that typically don't really have a clear-cut uh, idea of when they should go. I have to say, oftentimes, some of our students in, in optometry school often say that, oh, yeah, this is my first eye exam ever, and it's a little scary. How did you come into optometry if you've never had an eye exam? So those are some of the some of the surprises that we have. Yeah, over, over 40, um, I think we pretty much agree every other year is probably good. And once you hit close to 65, annual eye exams are really very important. Yeah, no, that's good. And I guess related to that, it sounds like from what I, what I hear the two of you talking about, there's a distinction between an eye exam that looks at, at your eye health and an eye exam that looks at your vision acuity, the ability of my kids to see the blackboard in school. Um, how do, how, what should you ask for, or what's, what's the right balance, or is it, a, is it an either or, is it a both on, on the eye health versus the vision acuity? Okay, so uh, I will be happy to respond to that. An eye exam should always look at a number of things. How well you see with each eye, how well you see with your eyes together, whether you need any type of correction with lenses, either glasses or sunglasses or reading glasses, and how healthy your eye is both inside the eye as well as outside the eye. You don't necessarily need to have drops to dilate your eyes every year, but somebody should look at the back of your eye uh, pretty often just to make sure that there's nothing going on. The interesting thing is the nerve endings in your eye don't give you pain. 
So you may not realize if there's no pain that you have a vision problem. It might just be flashes of light and oftentimes people ignore that. So an eye exam should really be all of the above. That's great. And kind of related to that, um, what should someone ask for? Like I've heard the phrase comprehensive eye exam. What should a, what should a person walking in the door uh, to, uh, to their appointment make sure they're, they're getting or know what to ask for? Dr. Martin, you want to you want to take this, or you want sure. me? Sure. No, I can definitely step in here. So, as Dr. Block said, I think the biggest um, thing that people should make sure that they're getting is a look in the back of the eye. Sometimes, if you need to advocate for yourself, this would be the area of biggest concern, whether that's through dilation or through imaging. Right. And, and, and you know, the imaging is is. Oftentimes, there are machines or computer designs that will be able to look at the back of your eye to see how healthy it is without having to put the drops in your eyes. So it, it, it's non-invasive, but it is often very helpful and important. Yeah, well, thank you. And, and sort of generally speaking, what uh, in terms of Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance, what tends to be covered and not covered on a... Um, uh, uh, at an eye exam? With regards to Medicare, for example, I deal a lot with that population. An annual dilated eye exam is covered every year. If there's special imaging that needs to be acquired, it's most often times covered as well. But again, make sure to talk to your eye care provider to ask those questions. Great. And we have two. Uh, go ahead. Do you want to add to that? Uh, Glasses are not necessarily covered as often as a medical exam. So, yes. so depending on your insurance, every insurance plan is written a little bit differently. Um, so depending on your age and the coverage you have will determine whether you are entitled to a pair of glasses under that plan. Great. Well, thank you. We um, <clears throat> just received two questions that, that, that I'd like to sort of just go back a little bit to the to – the, um, the, the risk factors for um, uh, Elizabeth in Massachusetts says that you know growing up she played tennis, she skied, she was outdoors outdoors a lot. Um, is that something that would put her at risk for uh, AMD as, as she gets older? You know that's a great question, and a lot of studies are going into looking at the effect of UV light. Um, if she was wearing goggles, protective eyewear, that generally reduces your risk. So nowadays when, you know, especially young people are coming in and they're very active or even older people, we do recommend tinted sunglasses or ski goggles to reduce the risk, not only for macular degeneration, but UV light has been shown to cause um, even advancement of cataracts in the eye over time. Great. And related to that, uh, Diane from Texas is wondering, can AMD be something that is caused by other health problems in, in your body as you get older? That's a great question as well. You know, a lot of studies have looked at the lifestyle that we have and its effect on AMD. And they've looked at the Medita Mediterranean diet. And again, this goes alongside with our overall cardiovascular health, not just our eyes, but they've shown that a diet rich in dark, leafy green vegetables, nice, healthy, fresh fish versus a lot of carbohydrates and dairy can actually reduce your risk of macular degeneration. 
And again, that doesn't just help help your eyes, but also your cardiovascular system, because they do find that people that live a more sedentary lifestyle aren't getting exercise and aren't getting the proper nutrients are more at risk. That's very helpful. And, and, and kind of related to that, um, Dr. Morton, we hear people uh, mention something called a treatment uh, for AMD called ARIDS or ARIDS2. Would you be able to uh, expand a little on that point? Of course. So in the 1990s, there was a huge multi-centered trial called ARIDS. And at that time, they looked at what vitamins will actually reduce your risk of progression of macular degeneration. Well, what they found is a multivitamin that has five different items, vitamin C, vitamin E, zinc oxide, copper, and the last was beta carotene, helped to reduce the risk of intermediate to advanced macular degeneration by 25%. Now, let's take a step back. There's three basic stages in dry macular degeneration. Dry macular degeneration. There's two types of macular degeneration, dry and wet. Most people, 90% of people that have macular degeneration have the dry form. And this form can range from people not even knowing that they have it because their vision is still perfect, all the way to having significant central vision loss. And when you look at the different distinctions between early, intermediate, and late, they found that the vitamins only help for the intermediate and the advanced stage. So if you have very early macular degeneration, the ARIDS vitamins haven't been shown 100% to help you, but again, there's no harm in taking these extra vitamins. Now, the one thing that they looked at with the original ARIDS vitamins was the beta carotene. In people that smoked, they found that beta carotene actually increases your risk of lung cancer. So if you go to the store and you're looking at the different ARIDS forms of vitamins, and ARIDS is A-R-E-D-S, um, there is a formulation without beta carotene for those that smoke. Now, a few years back, this um, multi-center trial, ARIDS-2, came out, and it was a huge deal. People couldn't wait to find out the results because they looked at the effect of omega-3 because, again, that's involved in antioxidation in the body, and lutein and zeaxanthine. Those are big words for antioxidants that we have within our retina and in our macula. And interestingly, we found that the omega-3 didn't actually help prevent the progression of macular degeneration. But what they found was this lutein and zeaxanthine actually does help to reduce your progression as well, especially in those that couldn't have the beta carotene because they were current or former smokers. Well, thank you. Um, appreciate that. And so you, um, you mentioned a multivitamin. If somebody went to their local pharmacy, would it be labeled as ARIDS2, or do they have to, to get different... Um, uh, different vitamins to to kind of uh, take them together? That's another good question. I know sometimes when we go to the pharmacy, it's overwhelming with the selection that we have, not only for vitamins, but for eye drops, whether that be artificial tears or otherwise. So most of the vitamins are labeled ARIDS or ARIDS2. If you need help, I do suggest talking to your eye care provider or local pharmacist to help you with the brands that they carry in office. And again, or at the pharmacy. And again, they should be labeled ARIDS2. And if you are a current or previous smoker, to make sure that there is no beta carotene in that formulation. But they do have the recommended amounts in most of the labeled ARIDS2 or ARIDS1 formulations. So it should all be there for you. 
Great. Uh, Dr. Block, I want to get turn to some sort of big picture um, societal uh, questions again about vision disease on the rise. Um, is there anything that, that communities uh, can do to be more supportive of, of um, aging populations, particularly as, as uh, age-related diseases increase? There are a number of things that were recommended within the report. Some of them related to the physical environment that people are in. There's lots of modifications to buildings that can be made to ensure those who have a visual impairment are able to get around safely. And oftentimes, the communities are unaware that as they make changes within their, their facilities in the community, that those things are available. The report really wanted to advocate that our goals were to educate the government on all different levels, all the way down to the local community. So they were aware that this is a growing problem and that individuals with visual impairment live in the communities. And it really was their responsibility to ensure when they start to look at modifications of the buildings that they need to take this into consideration. Simple things that could be made available to them, simple modifications to, to the environment that could be made, made so that someone could maintain their independence even with a vision loss. That's great because, as you mentioned earlier, it's, a, it's such a key part of of, um, of healthy aging is is that sense of independence. Um, uh, did the report address whether there are any uh, areas where we need more research on on vision disease? One of the biggest uh, recommendations that everybody sitting at the table when we were discussing vision uh, indicated is there are so many gaps in the research. Much of the research that's taken place over the past 10 years is really focused on bench science, and it isn't necessarily going to help the U.S. population for another 10 or 15 years. We really felt that it was important that National Institute of Health, National Eye Institute, and the CDC look at many areas where we can do a better job. How do we how do we ensure that there's better screening techniques? How do we ensure that 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 people actually access healthcare services? What are the barriers and the drawbacks for people? Is it money? Is it transportation? Is the fear of going to the doctor and hearing something that you don't want to hear? So we felt very strongly that there are significant gaps in research and we looked to to uh, the rec within our recommendations for most people involved from from the level of research to to take vision into consideration, and the other piece that we oftentimes ignore is vision shouldn't be siloed. You know, we always talk about you going to your your optometrist separately from your healthcare provider. One of the, the the focuses we had is we need to educate all healthcare providers to integrate vision into the basic healthcare system. We had a geriatric physician on the committee who said, you know, anytime she has an individual come in for a health exam that's and she was focused on more of the seventy and the eighty year olds, that they really talked about their vision at that time and made sure that that recommendation was for an eye exam to ensure that their vision is, is assessed and if there's any intervention that needs to be done, it's part of the holistic view of that patient. Yeah, I think that is, that is absolutely great advice, both individually and from a, a policy standpoint. We have uh, one last question that's going to get us into our last uh, topic, and it's Colleen from Ontario. 
wants to know um, what age should children start wearing sunglasses? And before we get to that, I just I think just sort of want to wrap up today by talking about children and grandchildren and you know, whether it's Colleen's question about when should kids start wearing sunglasses or or just in general, how what type of advice can we give to our children and grandchildren? Uh, you know, decades before um, they may be uh, they may be senior citizens. So there's no no age that's too young. We want babies and sunglasses. They they have some wonderful sunglasses designed specifically for infants and toddlers. You want to prevent any of that that UV light that could hurt the eyes. Protect it for it, as early as you can. That being said, as children start to participate in Sports activities, you want to make sure whatever they're wearing is appropriate and protective as well. So protection as well, not only from the sun, but from injury in any way. Um, our goal is really to ensure that children have an opportunity to grow and develop fully, and that means that we need to protect their vision and their eyesight as infants all the way through adulthood. That's a great point, and I'll add as well on top of that to make sure that you're talking with your family and whether that's your kids or grandchildren to, so that they know as well what their family has. If you have macular degeneration, let them know from an early age that this runs in the family. So to be taking things like UV protection seriously from when they're young all the way to when they're older and to let them know as well that because they have this in their genetics to make sure that they are going for their annual eye exams and people are looking at the back of the eye so that the minute we see something that looks abnormal, we can take action and do something about it. Well, that's great. Uh, thank you. And, and uh, just kind of a last question to each of you. Do you have any, in, in what you do uh, in your profession, do you have any uh, sort of big picture advice or concerns or sort of th that you'd want to share with, um, with, with people about their eye health or yeah, you know, I work in our urgent eye care clinic a lot, and I tend to see a lot of people come in that have not taken care of their eye health until it has become too late. So really the biggest thing for me is prevention in your annual exams. And if something's wrong, don't hesitate. Go in to see your local eye care provider so that they can take a look and take action early if need be. Just like with macular degeneration, the earlier we know about it, the earlier we can intervene and hopefully preserve vision. Well, that's great. Thank you. Uh, any, anything else you'd, uh, you'd want to add? So, so my, I think I'd like to share, I'm a specialist with pediatrics and special needs patients, and oftentimes people who work with special needs patients, whether they're children or adults, don't realize the value of ensuring that these individuals see well because oftentimes it allows them to reach a higher level of quality of life. Uh, we see it often with Special Olympics. I work with Special Olympics regularly. and. And we really want to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to have optimum vision, and that means good vision care. Well, that's great. I really appreciate the, the advice from both of you. I think you've had um, a lot of very positive, specific uh, points of advice, but at the same time, you've done a great job conveying to people the seriousness of, of vision health. And uh, Dr. Block and Dr. Moritan, I just want to thank you very much for, for your generosity and uh, Dr. Block, appreciate your service to, to the country and to the field of science through your National Academy of Sciences uh, work. And I know you've got uh, another um, meeting of that coming up, and we wish, we wish you um, 
wish you all the best. So with that, I'd just like to conclude today's Bright Focus chat. And thank you, Dr. Block and Dr. Morrison and all of our listeners. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.